Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams. Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast in which we talk about the secrets behind living the life you've always dreamed of. I'm Ellen Barton, and I'm so honored to have as my guest a woman whose daily advice column is read by some 22 million readers. She is a best-selling author, a regular guest on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and is, according to her website, a great lover of donuts. Amy Dickinson, welcome to the show. Hi, Ellen. Thank you. Yeah, it's so nice to have you. I've been a huge fan of your column for many years, and you always seem to have such wise advice and you deliver it with humor and wit. How did you start doing that job? That's such a cool job, but how, how did you get into that? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it turns out being an advice giver is a job that lots of people would love to have. And I, you know, ironically, I had never thought about it in, the, in that way, but I've been approached by so many people who tell me they envy my job and they think they could do it and they want to do it. And, um, of course these days, you know, anybody can set up their own little advice shop and, and see how it goes. But I, I came into this job in a very traditional way. Um, I have been a, I have been a journalist for many, many years and I, um, when Ann Landers died, she, Ann Landers was the great, you know, the, the great classic. And yes, the iconic Ann Landers advice giver. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. died in 2003. And at that time, or right before it, I had been writing a column for Time Magazine on families and parenting. And that was very advicey and very authoritative. Um, and the Chicago Tribune, which syndicated the Ann Landers column, simply asked me if I would like to try out for it after her death. And they, they got hundreds of queries from people who wanted, who wanted this job and they narrowed it down to around 10 people and, and basically had us try out by answering questions on something of a deadline. So I got it. That's awesome. I'm so glad you did because your answers give I, I don't know. There's a, they're, they're just so authentic and they, they really, um, I think that you wrote somewhere that you're, you know, striving to make people's lives just a little better or something along those lines. But I thought, yeah, that's, you know, she really nails it like pretty much every time. It's, it's amazing. You have a skill and the talent. Thank you. And, and I would say that, um, you know, I think some people really love it when I get really sassy and sharp and snarky. But um, that is not my goal. You know, my goal is not to be more clever than the people that write into me. Um, it's certainly over time, I would say that the most positive uh, aspect of my doing this job is that I, as time goes on, I genuinely, genuinely want to help people. Mm-hmm. I think the, at the outset, I just wanted to have a really successful advice column, you know, and brand it and have it be great and, and have it be authoritative and funny and wonderful and clever. 
And now I, I just really, really want to help people. You know, I think that comes across. That's what I mean by that authenticity. And um, I, I think that must be why it resonates with so many people, because we sense that. We as the readers sense that. Yeah. And Ellen, you know why I want, why I want that is because my own life has been so, so challenging that over the last 10 years, I really searched for connection. And when I have found it, connection and comfort, I have really wanted to pass it along because one of the most powerful things I think I can offer to somebody is the most powerful thing that's been offered to me, which is, um, I see you, I hear you, I believe you, and um, I want to help, you know? That's incredibly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you, you, you say that, you know, some of your qualifications are many of them. Obviously, you're a beautiful writer and accomplished writer. But as far as the advice goes, you, you say, well, I've been through, you know, hard, hard knocks in life. I've had those uh, challenges and things. And I really love that. I, I think that's so important. And I'm just curious, I, I, you know, obviously adore your column. And um, yet I wonder, you know, so uh, because you don't have the, I don't know what you would even need, psychology degree or something to do that job. Like, you know, so often people go to want to try to do something like um, become a writer or become um an artist or something that they've dreamed of. And then there's this little voice that comes up in people's heads sometimes that's like, oh, I'm not qualified to do that, or I'm not pretty enough to do that, or smart enough to do that, or successful enough to do that. And of course, you know, eventually we overcome that and make, you know, convince ourselves to leap outside of our comfort zone. And that's where the cool stuff happens. But did you ever have that like little self-talk happening with you, especially when you just were getting started with the column? Or trying to audition for the column? Ellen, I, I I don't think I'm pretty enough to even be on the radio. Like you know what I'm <laughs> saying? I have it every day. Every day. But here's what happened to me in childhood. I grew up um in somewhat of a hard scrabble situation and there was some poverty, there were some tough times, there was some instability. Um, but I, I think very, very early on as a child, even I told myself, if I'm going to beat this, it's going to be on me. And there are times when I feel very, very unsure of myself. And here's what I say. And I think I almost, I think I even remember doing this as a child, like auditioning for things. I would go, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're not going to send the cops, you know? I mean, <laughs> so my standard was so low. Like <laughs> in my world, the worst thing that can happen is, is pretty basic. It's like death or the cops coming to your house to take you away. And anything other than that, I feel like it's pretty good. You know? Exactly. So if I go for things and I've always done this, I've always felt this way. And I've told my kids this, I always feel like, um, 
you know, in baseball, batting 300 is considered amazing. So that means you get like three less, you know, three out of 10 try things that you try, you might get. So I always use that standard. It's like if I try for 10 things and get three, that's pretty good. And it's that has helped to make me pretty fearless to realize that most of the things I'm trying are in essence, fairly low stakes. No one is going to punish me if I try something and fail, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but, but that really is about conquering the, that voice in your head. And we all have it. We all have it. Yeah, that's huge. And do you think, so you see so much, you you get so many people writing into your column and um, you see like all kinds of different problems and questions that people have. Do you think that, you know, first of all, how important is mindset to success in, in however you want to define that word? And do we generally, as humans, do we overcomplicate things? Because it really, is it that simple? Well, I think mindset is huge, but let me give you an example just from today. I'm working on my column, and I got a really good letter. You know, a good question is one that, for me, is is a question that um, really um, excites me to do some research and to try to answer it well. So in this context, the good question was from somebody who said, I suffer from claustrophobia. I know it's unnatural. I know it's crazy, um, but after I retired, it seemed to get worse, and now I'm waking up at night with, with dreams that I'm enclosed in an elevator. Or So that is, to me, a fascinating question. And the very first thing I want this person to know is that it's actually not unnatural. It's not irrational to suffer from claustrophobia, especially if your claustrophobia comes from something that happened to you, as it often does, like in childhood. In that case, it's really rational to have claustrophobia. If you had an experience of being shut into a small space where you couldn't get out or felt like you couldn't get out, then I think it's really normal to feel that way, to fear that. So the very first thing I try to do is to establish that this seems like uh does not seem crazy. It does not seem unnatural. And the second thing I try to establish is you can feel better. You're not alone and you can feel better. Like that's my goal is for that person after they read my response to go like, oh, okay, I got this. Like I can do it. And, you know, to give some very practical recommendations, of course, you know, including seeing a professional therapist. I have actually um, spent many years off and on seeing a therapist. And so I'm a great believer in turning some of your health concerns and your mental health concerns certainly over to professionals who can help you, you know. And so if I'm the first step in 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 telling somebody oh, you can, you can do it. It's okay. Like you're going to be okay. And you can, you can learn to cope with this. I, I think that's like a job, you know, like that's a good day for me. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's great. Do you get people coming up to you all the time asking for advice? I do. Of course, none of them are my family members because they're like, ah, you, you know. (laughs) Um, But I do. And I understand, you know, it's no worse than like my, I ran into my vet recently and, and just seeing her in a, in a totally different setting, I wanted to ask her a question about my pets. So I get that. I mean, it's like, and my headshot, you know, uh, runs with my column in many, many newspapers. So people do recognize me and they do want to run things past me. If I'm available, I'm happy to hear it. Oftentimes I will respond by saying, oh, that sounds really interesting. Why don't you send that in? Um, and I'll tackle that in my column. That's sort of become my little a boundary establishment. Mm-hmm. I had a, an in-law tell me, and boy, when your in-laws offer you, uh, you know, feedback, it's big, right? Right. So I had an in-law say to me yesterday, you are really, really good at boundaries. And I was like, wow, I'm not sure he meant it as a compliment, but, but that I felt really good about that because that's something I have had to learn. It's also something I think I try to encourage other people to have. Yeah, it's so important. I think it was in one of your columns a long time ago where it was something that you wrote about um, nobody can make you into like a doormat without your permission. Nobody can do things to you that you, you know, treat you in a way that you don't necessarily want most of the time without your permission. Well, and of course, Ellen, um, I, I, I did write that, and I've written that many, many times, but of course I stole that from Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil's great saying that he says all the time is, you, treat, you teach people how to treat you. Mm-hmm. And that is so, so true. But of course a child can't teach others, you know, adults how to treat them. And if a child is mistreated in childhood, that child is very wounded and can grow up um, to be an adult that all that adult knows is how to be treated poorly, you know? Right. So that's a tough one to turn around. But boundaries is huge, huge, huge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it is a tough one to turn around. But it seems that, like, no matter where you are at in life, it is possible to turn it around. You know, awareness, I think, is the first step awareness of your situation and then doing what you can to change things. I, I think it is always possible. And I, and that's why I think that's one reason people enjoy your column so much is that maybe they do see themselves in some of the situations or get ideas of how to, you know, make little changes in their lives, get inspired. Yeah. My, actually my adult life has been an absolutely nonstop effort to um, improve. And in fact, I've always wanted to call, I've written two memoirs now, and and I've always wanted to call one, you know, self-improvement or self-helping, because I feel like my whole life has been marked by a real effort to sort of be better, do better, be thinner, be smarter, be a better sleeper, be a better parent. You know, I just really, really want to be better at everything I do. Um, mainly because I'm not, there's a lot that I'm not so great at, but I've always been somebody who wanted to, uh, do differently and do better and improve. And I'm always shocked when I meet adults who feel like they're 
they're pretty cooked. You know, they're good. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it, and it's great to feel good about yourself. I love that. But I often feel like, oh, really? There's not one place where you would like to do a better job. Like, really? You know? Right. Because for me, it's really, uh, I make a fairly constant effort to do better. And I, I'm glad that you brought up the book because I want to talk about the memoirs. Um, your newer memoir is called Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things. And the first one, of course, is The Mighty Queens of Freeville. And both of these are largely set, partly set, in the tiny town of Freeville, New York. And, Amy, you're at a point in your career, you could live anywhere in the world, I would imagine. Why did you choose to return to this place where you grew up? Well, I never really shook the Freeville dust off of my boots. I have to say, when I lived in London, I was homesick for Freeville. When I lived in New York City, I was homesick for Freeville. When I, you know, when I lived in Washington, D.C. and Chicago, I was homesick for Freeville. And I would come home quite often. Um, but the reason I ultimately left Chicago and moved back to Freeville, population 520, um, I had always spent a lot of time in my hometown. My entire family lives here. And, but the reason I chose to move back permanently was because my mother, um, was becoming frail and I felt like it was a combination really of me just wanting to spend more time with her, but also, uh, trying in my own way to be helpful to her at the end of her life. Yeah. And, as a, as a child, you had kind of an unconventional upbringing, and you said it earlier that you were kind of scrappy, I think was the word that you used, or something like that. Um, your dad was gone a lot of the time, and after he left, your mom was working full-time. She's putting herself through school, and that meant you and your siblings had to figure out a lot for yourself. That is true. Although I will say that um, we all had, and I certainly, I'm the youngest of four, I certainly had a, the great a benefit of being raised by a very, by one really, I think, very, very good and very skilled parent. And the years that matter the most, I think, in most people's lives, which is the very early years from zero to five, I had um, two parents in the household and a mother who was a full-time uh, farm wife and mother. So that was really, really important. And the foundation for, I think a lot of my spunk, a lot of my confidence started there. And then um, the circumstances, my father did abandon our family when I was 12 and we lost everything, but I had another advantage in that, my siblings had all left home and my mother and I spent three years alone together, mother and daughter, um, at the end of my childhood, that's the years of 15, 16 and 17 before I went to college. And those were incredibly formative years, you know, for anybody, certainly for me. And so I think I really benefited from my mother's presence during those really vital times in between it, it got a little crazy. Um, my father was very unstable. 
He, um, as you mentioned, was not home much anyway. Uh, we had a farm. He was very, we were all very attached. We sort of had this love-hate relationship with our cows, as all farm kids do. But there was this very deep attachment to, because it was our lifestyle. And then when my father left, it ended, all of that went away really almost overnight. And it was completely heartbreaking. Um, but I got to watch my mother sort of piece things together over time. And that was something I needed to see, you know. Um, she pulled it together and she kept it going. And um, her own life was very uh, transformed by getting a college education. And then she got her master's degree and so I, as a girl and a young woman, got to watch my mother um, make her own life. And it was very, very powerful. And yeah, I think it taught me everything I needed to know, you know. Yeah, that's got to be where you got some of that grit from. I would say, although it's, it's interesting, my mother and I had um, completely opposite temperaments. She was very shy. She was very reserved. Um, and everything she did, she did very much under the radar. Uh, she was really funny and a, a true superstar in her own right, but she didn't mind if nobody knew that. I, uh, I think of my father's personality, very sort of out there, like loud, jackassy, you know, I, I definitely got my, my dad's jackass gene and <laughs> That that can come in pretty handy when you have to take lots of chances, you know? Sure, sure. How did growing up the way you did affect your own parenting style when you were then a single mom raising your daughter, Emily? Did, uh, how, how did you identify the influences of both of your parents at that point? Well, I, it's funny you should mention this because now I have two granddaughters and my husband, and they are staying with us for a few weeks and they are eight and five and uh, really delightful, but a handful. And my husband said to me just last night, and it made me so happy. um, He said, you know, you have always talked about your mother's parenting and how, what a fun mother she was. And he said, I never saw it until now. He said every day, I see um, her influence on you because you love to have fun with these children. And, uh, you know, that made me so incredibly happy because I was, I was in fact raised by a mother who loved to have fun. She genuinely enjoyed being around children. She was very creative, funny, and fun. She was up for anything. It was great. Oh, that's a beautiful story. I love that. Yeah. And so, Amy, when you moved back to Freeville, you found yourself um, reconnecting with people who you had known your whole life. And it was really nice how you described it. You know, you said that there was no need to, to really talk about the whole backstory because everybody knew. And it, it, there's just this deep level of comfort and belonging which is really interesting. And that's one thing about about small towns is that we are not gossipy people at all. It's sort of like you don't have to talk because people witness your life. 
Mm. And I am around people who knew my grandparents and my grandparents were born in 1890. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I encountered somebody uh, just last night who knew my grandparents. It's amazing. Wow. That deep level of knowing, you know, that's something that is so rare these days in America that people, I guess, stay in the small towns and have that. You know, obviously people do, but it's it seems like less and less common. But there's some great value to that. It's really cool you were able to go back and recapture it. Right. And there's certainly been a lot of value to me. I can also 100% understand why people want to leave and remake themselves. I mean, I, I give people credit for doing that. You kind of had the best of both worlds. You got to yeah. do, you got to live, live in some cool places and then come back home. And when you did come back, one of the people you rediscovered was this guy, Bruno, Bruno Schickel. Yeah. Who uh, eventually you would marry. Um, your stories of falling in love with him are so sweet, so adorable. And I'm wondering if you can um, read a little bit um, from your book, from, from the um, Strangers Tend to Tell Me Things memoir. And there's this scene where it, Bruno's coming into your house. He's a contractor and um, is, you're having him look at some work to you know, see if he could help you out with some renovations. Right. And, and can I just say that uh, Bruno, Bruno's company's motto is dreams built on time. And he certainly arrived in my life in the nick of time, for sure. Mm, lovely. And renovated it, if I can say. So, yeah, I'm very happy to revisit this uh, really happy chapter from my life. And, and I want you to imagine all of this happening between two people who are not young. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like a Hallmark Channel movie with crow's feet. Okay. (laughs) So Bruno entered my house like John Wayne darkening Maureen O'Hara's doorway in The Quiet Man. His large silhouette was backlit against the open door and a cyclone of leaves kicked up on the porch behind him. His giant red Chevy pickup truck filled the driveway. He came into the house and we shook hands. Tingle. I took him upstairs to show him my plan to push out the back of my house. I noticed the unmade bed and the horrible clutter of my cowboy room. I was wearing the same clothes I was wearing the day before, laundry day, and I'd forgotten to brush my hair. We descended the creaky stairs and he sat on my uncomfortable twig couch. I offered him a cup of warmed-over coffee, which he accepted. Bruno and I first met when I was 12, and he was 16. I became aware of him when I entered the orbit of his unusual and enormous family. His parents were proto-hippie Dorothy Day Catholics who farmed a ramshackle 225-acre place they called Mary Hill Farm three miles from our own falling down farm. So now I'm going to skip to the end of this uh, lovely chapter where I meet Bruno and I had been invited to his family's house uh, after Thanksgiving for a family party. And I was really nervous because I had a huge crush on Bruno and I was afraid I would see him there. And of course, hoping I would see him there. Okay. Bruno opened the door for me, and I climbed into the passenger side of his truck. 
It was warm inside the truck's cab. It smelled like pine, Carhartts, and dusty muck boots. My self-consciousness was acute. Bruno said he was driving over to his house to pick up his nephew. Would I come with? I glanced toward the crowded house but felt a magnetic pull toward the truck. You can take me anywhere, I thought. Bruno took the two-lane road away from town. The moon was white, full, and hanging directly through the windshield like a giant romantic beacon. I had to stifle a laugh at the brutal irony of it. I was trapped in a moving vehicle with my crush, with the moon itself mocking me. We drove along quietly. Bruno seemed utterly at ease. I was quaking. I felt the truth emerging like a full moon rising. You know I have a crush on you, Bruno, right? I said, staring straight ahead at the road. He was quiet for a moment. Well, Amy, I'm very flattered, he said. I didn't hear the rest. I knew that when someone was flattered by your attention, you were done. Gamely, I tried to recover. We drove through the snow, up a quiet lane with trees on both sides meeting overhead. We pulled into the long driveway of his beautiful farmhouse, surrounded by fields and hedgerows, illuminated by the giant white moon. Pemberley. I walked inside with him, and we retrieved his teenage nephew, Ben, and drove back to his mother's farm. I told Bruno I was going to leave to catch my movie. My mother will be very sad if she doesn't get to see you. Just come in to say hi to her, he told me. And because he'd played the mother card, I entered his family's party. The house was crowded with adults and their children. I greeted his many siblings, most of whom I hadn't seen in decades. I saw Bruno talking to his mother, and then he led her to me. Like my own mother, Marnie was white-haired, stooped, and frail. She said, My son says you're a proper young lady, and that you won't stay without a personal invitation from me, Amy. I hope you'll stay to eat with us. I made sure to sit with a group as far away from Bruno as I could manage, but I noticed him watching me from the periphery. All night long, he was just at the edge of my field of vision. At one point during the crowded and noisy meal, I could see only his elbow, and I knew I was in love with it. Ah, I love oh. that. It's so beautiful. I love My that elbow Mr. imagery. Darcy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah. How much did, did falling in love like catch you by surprise? You weren't really expecting that to happen when you moved back to, to town. I wasn't expecting it, but I definitely wanted it. And um and and when I say I wasn't expecting it, I think the good thing the good, I was at a very good place in my life. I was secure professionally. I, I was secure as a mother. I had raised my child, my daughter, Emily, to adulthood. I felt very good about her. Um, and, but also, I had a plan in place to cohabit with a friend of mine who was also single and uh, also about my age. 
And we had a, a really good plan to basically like get a duplex in Washington, sort of, you know, share a kitchen, share our lives to some extent and basically grow old um, in the true uh, tried and true old maid fashion. I was like, we, we were both really good with that. And I think that gave me a feeling of comfort, um, to have that kind of plan. And that was a real plan. You know, I was very ready to do that. So I was going to move back home, be with my mother, see her through to the end, however long that took. And then I had basically a retirement plan. But then Bruno came along and it really was like being hit with a ton of bricks. And I was very, you know, happy to alter my retirement plan to include Bruno as a partner. And I'm happy to report that my friend um, who I had this plan with, she was alone for a while. Uh, She, you know, of course, came to our wedding and she was alone for a while. But then she, too fell in love in a very similar way and um, got married three years ago and is now enjoying her late life love. So it's great. Well, that's a great story. Yeah. You never know what's around the corner in life. It's it's what makes it so much fun, I guess. But um, I want to thank you, Amy, for talking with us today. And I'm wondering if there's any last thoughts or advice or uh, wisdom that you can share with us before we go? I'm going to pass along uh, wisdom that's been passed to me through a, a very dear friend of mine. And I, I think of these two things every day and they're both, they're sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum of what I do. The first is to imagine that people you encounter are having, are holding an invisible sign over their heads. This especially applies to children. And the sign says, please see me, please see me. And read that sign and make sure that you see people. The second is also from the same friend whose favorite saying is, you got this. (laughs) Mm. You got this. And I often feel that that's what I say. I use lots of words, but I often feel that that's what I say in my column, but also to my children and grandchildren. Like, you got this. You can do it. And I'm going to be here while you do. So that's what I'm going to pass along. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. My guest was Amy Dickinson. You can find links to Amy's website and her book on our website, readysetgrit.com. Then please check in again next Friday for another new episode to help you turn your daydream into a phenomenal success. Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit, your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our eBooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit, inspired actions, real results. 